Good morning. Please bear with me a little bit. My voice is still a little bit raspy. I've had a little bout of laryngitis through the week, and it's, it's starting to come back. But uh, uh, if you would, uh, keep me in prayer for this. Do a couple of announcements. Uh, we know uh, one through four, uh, we've got that pretty well down. Uh, number five, evening service will resume tonight, 6 p.m., correct? Okay. Uh, one that's not on the bulletin is our communion service for next Sunday, uh, the first week in March. <clears throat> can you folks hear me okay? Rachel, can you tune this up just a touch? Thank you. And uh, we were talking about our communion dinner uh, after the communion service. Is this... Uh, something that we're all prepared to engage in next uh, week Every, everybody's uh, for doing this there's no complications that'll cause you not to be here that we know of World War three not uh, uh, being mentioned um, pastor's going to ask me to pray uh, after uh, the announcements and after he gets going in his sermon uh, for Ukraine, but I'd like to give a, a brief update. <clears throat> Overnight, the uh, Russian forces took the second largest city of Ukraine, uh, Kirkan. And this morning, the Ukrainians, to their credit, took it back. There's 40 million people in the Ukraine uh, nation, uh, about 250,000 Russians that have incurred uh, in parts and in mass. Uh, we really do need to keep this country in our prayers. These people are showing a tenacity that uh, has been lost on the rest of this world for a great many years, including this nation. Uh, we've got examples of women. Well, one woman I saw, 79 years old, learning to shoot an AK-47, being trained by former United States military special ops uh, to be trained as guerrilla fighters. Now, I don't know about you, but it 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 does something for my soul to see these people willing to to stand and fight for something that they believe so vehemently in. And this uh, a lesson that this country truly needs to understand that freedom is not free. So. Russia has gone to uh, their highest security level for nuclear uh, war. Uh, all of their nuclear uh, silos, their nuclear installations are on high alert. Uh, that is most concerning. Uh, this, this tyrant uh, Putin, I understand why he wants Ukraine. Uh, he wants it as a buffer. He doesn't want NATO camped on his back porch. But and all the, the difficulties that we potentially see, there is one, one bright little spot that we can take comfort in. The International Federation of the Judo uh, has suspended Mr. Putin from being the chair of the society. For how long? We don't know. I don't know why they didn't kick him out, but for now, be suspended, so I guess that's something positive. 
Anyways, does anybody have anything uh, to add to the announcements? Laura. Okay. David Lee, they're, they're missionaries to Romania, correct? And Romania is, I think, right on the border of Ukraine. So they're, they're, they're not out of the woods either. They're, they're in dire straits as well, potentially. So any one of those nations that bordered Ukraine are potential for, for great distress. So and they're trying to get everybody out that they can. So is there something that we need to contact or send funds to or not yet? Not yet? <coughs> Like I said, it's it's just you know, the the situation is is dire. Uh, it's my fervent prayer uh, that that they're able to beat back this uh, this incursion. Uh, the Germany, to their credit, has stepped up and and uh, is shipping uh, anti-tank missiles, which are uh, uh, fifth-generation rocket-propelled grenades and. Uh, they're also sending anti-aircraft Stinger missiles, their version of them, which is quite devastating as a, as a weapon. So uh, that may help to turn the tide. But it's the tenacity of these people that is to be admired and respected. And when we lay our head down in a, on a pillow tonight in relative calm and security of this nation, for all the troubles we have, we need to thank God that we have the blessings of security and freedom in this nation still and know that it's only less than a generation away if we abuse it or neglect it. God's providence is great and wonderful, isn't it? And His grace. So, our scripture for meditation today is taken from the book of Psalm. Psalm 30, page 867.
As we begin our service this morning, would you stand with us for opening prayer? Dan, may I prevail on you to lead us in prayer? Take your red hymnal this morning, the Red Trinity, and turn to 153. 153.
gentleman catch me right before I came up here. I am so sorry, but he's not. <laughs> Mr. Lewis asked for 618 in the red, number 618. I did not ask him for a reason, though. Did you have a reason, just your favorite? I think it is your favorite, him. Number 618, his eyes on the sparrow. I look for it in a different key, but. <coughs>
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 32, verses 1 through 21. It's on page 51 of your pew Bibles. When you come to that passage, please stand with us.
and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second and third and all of the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with his gifts. I am sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. May God bless his work today. Thank you, brother. Please remain standing. Please take your red hymnal again and turn to number 355. 355 in the red.
Our text this morning is Genesis 32. Genesis 32. Our study last week concentrated on Laban's pursuit of Jacob because he had fled Laban's household in secret, which angered his father-in-law. He had three complaints. Number one, Jacob had sneaked away secretly without notifying Laban. Number two, he had not afforded Laban the opportunity to say farewell to his daughters and his grandchildren. And number three, in his entourage, but unknown unknown to Jacob, were Laban's stolen idols. Well, fireworks exploded between Jacob and Laban. Verse 36 says, Jacob took Laban to task by rehearsing how terribly Laban had treated Jacob in the 20 years of his employment cheating him of his wages many times, making him bear the loss of any livestock that were stolen, any that got sick and died. That all came out of Jacob's pocket, not Laban's. So both men were very hostile to each other, but in the end Laban proposed a peace treaty witnessed by a heap of stones on the border that both sides erected together. They then pledged not to cross that boundary line with any intent of doing the other harm. When all was said and done, the two parted company in peace. Laban kissed his daughters and grandchildren goodbye. He headed back to Haran and Jacob continued his journey south into the land of Canaan. But has Jacob simply exasperated the problem? In his desire to be free of Laban and his influence, has he forgotten that he has a brother, Esau, that might be a greater threat? I mean, after all, when they parted company 20 years earlier, Esau had pledged to kill Jacob for stealing his birthright and his blessing. So that brings us to today's study. Jacob prepares to meet his estranged brother, Esau. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for these historical accounts from which we learn that human nature hasn't changed much in all the centuries that have come and gone. Men still get angry with one another. They still take each other to task. They still try to harm the other person, gain the advantage. They will even go so far as to kill and destroy and hurt. And just there's just so much of that, even in our world today. So I pray that we'll learn the spiritual lessons from this account. What's sad to see that even among God's people at times, there's this animosity that makes us 
act like enemies with one another when we're not enemies. We're all part of the same family in Christ. I pray that you'll help us to see that and to repent where we have perhaps put personal egos ahead of peace. We see this in our world today. I mean, just this whole thing in Europe, people at each other's throats and fighting over who's going to have what, when, and all of that. Power struggles. Whatever men want, they don't want to pay for it, can create all kinds of problems. So I pray that you will help us as God's people to avoid pigeonholing certain things and making rash decisions that will hurt one another and certainly put a stain upon the church of Christ. Bless us as we study. May our souls be refreshed and encouraged and build up in the faith. And any here that are devoid of faith in Christ, grant them your repentance today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning deals with Jacob's preparation to meet his estranged brother Esau. The first thing we know is that there was an angelic watch care over Jacob. Once David was free of dealing with his angry father-in-law Laban and was back on track doing as God had instructed him, namely, chapter 31, verse 3, the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. And the Lord sent angelic messengers to affirm his presence and his watch care over Jacob. The particular way in which this reads is this. The angels of God met him. And then we have the added statement. When Jacob saw them. Verse 2. These are indicators that this is not a dream. It is not a day vision. That Jacob is experiencing. But it is an actual physical manifestation that's going on. You remember that back in Genesis 28, as Jacob fled from the wrath of his brother Esau, he arrived at an unnamed place. He took a stone from a pil- for a pillow, and he had a dream in which he saw a staircase resting on the earth with its top reaching into heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending on it with the Lord standing above it. Chapter 28, verse 12 and following, God promised Jacob the land that was pledged to Abraham and Isaac, saying, I am with you and I will watch over you. Wherever you go, I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. This was at the start of his flight to Haran, where for 20 years... He worked as Laban's son-in-law. Jacob saw all this. He heard all this in a divine dream. One of the ways in which God communicated to people in Old Testament times. Now, it's 20 years later. 
Jacob has listened to God, command him. It's audible, chapter 3, verse 13. Or verse 3, excuse me. To return to Canaan, in obedience, he left Laban with his family. And after settling their differences with a peace treaty, he's on the road once more when God comes to him again. This time with holy angels as God's emissaries to confirm God's watch care over Jacob. This is not a dream. This is not a vision, but an actual manifestation of angelic beings. So there's a pattern here. It's not a hard and fast pattern, because God can do what he wants when he wants. You can't lock God into a certain uh, mode of operation and say, well, he's got to do this because he did it over here. He has many ways of functioning. That said, observe that when God revealed himself to Abraham originally in Genesis 12, we are told, the Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land that I will show you. Chapter 12, verse 1. And Abraham obeyed. Then once in Canaan, and after Lot parted from his uncle, God again said to Abraham, Look north and south and all the land that you see, I will give you and your offspring forever. So these verbal instructions or promises happened again when God disallowed Eliezer to become Abraham's heir, chapter 15. Same chapter, when God cut the covenant with Abram, we read Abraham fell into a deep sleep. So this is a divine dream that he had. God, in the form of a smoking firepot and a blazing torch, passed through Covenant Road to ratify God's promises to Abraham unilaterally. So we've got an audible voice and we have dream. Chapter 17, Abraham is 99 years old. And we read, the Lord appeared to him. The Lord appeared to him. So now we've got vision. And he inaugurated the sign of circumcision with a name change for Abraham and a name change for Sarah. And a promised son would come to her in her old age. Chapter 18. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. Sarah was instructed to quickly prepare a meal for these visitors, and they ate it. One of those visitors was identified as the Lord. Chapter 18, verse 10. The other as two angels who went on to Sodom to rescue Lot and to destroy that city. Chapter 19, verse 1. So this latter means of communication was not a voice, nor was it a dream, nor was it a vision, but it was an actual physical manifestation of God and angels in the forms that they could be seen and heard. They could eat, they could drink real food, they could communicate to Abraham and later to Lot in a very ordinary way. Now all of that means this. 
We're looking at four means used by God to communicate with his people in this day and age. An audible voice, dreams, visions, which would be a day thing, and finally, a physical, touchable, seeable, audible manifestation in the angels. This latter also apparent in our text, verse 1, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahananim, meaning two camps. Now, what I'm showing here is that each manifestation of God, an audible voice, a dream, a vision, which is a day vision, and physical appearance, is showing progressive revelation. We in theology talk of this. Each one adding another and stronger affirmation that in the end, the voice heard from heaven, the dream dreamed in the night, the vision seen at the day, and finally, the physical <clears throat> manifestation or appearance of heavenly dignitaries were not, they were not the imaginary musings of ordinary men, but rather God's supernatural revelations to sinners of his heavenly will and his plan for his people. God communicating to his human creatures that far exceeds the testimony of the stars and the planets and the universe, though the psalmist is correct in saying, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Psalm 19, verse 1. Stars have their own language. God's watch care over Jacob. So even now, in these Old Testament texts, we're seeing how God is progressively coming out more and more with declaring what his will is. Secondly, Jacob announced his coming arrival to Esau. Verse 3, Jacob sent messengers ahead to Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Now, why would Jacob do such a thing? One might expect Jacob to kind of, mm, I don't know, slip into Canaan quietly, stealthily, no announcement, no disclosure, and certainly without fanfare. But he chose not to do this. Instead, he chose to face his estranged brother head on. <laughs> What is he attempting to do? Well, we don't have to guess. He tells us. Verse 4. This is what you are to tell my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there until now. I have cattle and donkeys and sheep and goats, men servants and maidservants, and now I am sending this message to my Lord. 
that I may find favor in your eyes. Hmm. Could anything be more clear? Jacob addresses Esau as his master, his Lord, and himself as Esau's servant. All of this as a form of humility and contrition. And a statement on what he owns, cattle, donkey, sheep, and so on, as well as many servants, is an indication that he wants nothing. Nor does he need anything from Esau of monetary value. It's not like he's saying to Esau, you know, I could use some help, brother. No. He's saying, I'm independent. I have my family. I have my livelihood. I don't need anything from you. Well, the response from Esau was a bit disconcerting, to say the least. Jacob's messengers returned, saying, We went to your brother, Esau, and um, now he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Verse 6. <laughs> oh, not exactly what Jacob wanted to hear. I mean, who sends 400 men to greet a long-lost brother returning all? This doesn't sound good. In fact, it appears to be rather ominous. And that is exactly the way Jacob understood the news. Verse 7. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. And he thought, he thought, if Esau comes and attacks one, the group that is left may escape. Now, I read a number of commentaries on this, and Jacob has been criticized for this by a number of them. They're suggesting that it's a lack of faith in God's promise of protection and care. But I don't see it that way. Why? Because faith in God does not exclude reasonable precautions in the face of danger. To be forewarned, as they say, is to be forearmed. His two-camp endeavor was a smart move. He's looking out for his wives. He's looking out for his children as best he knows how. And that doesn't mean that he has dismissed God's promise of protection. God works through means. And the means, reasonable means, would be, well, maybe I should divide my family up and servants up and so forth. Sad to say, but he's thinking this way. If they kill one group, if Esau does that, maybe the second group will have opportunity to escape. That's a pretty sad commentary, isn't it? On how this family is 
acting and reacting with one another. Jacob cannot trust Esau. He thinks, yeah, I hurt his feelings, and I stole his birthright and so on. Now he's seeing red. He's coming out here for 400 men to say hello to his brother? I don't think so. He's coming out here to cream me. And he's full of fear. He says so. Look at his prayer, verse 9 and following. He prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness that you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan. He's talking about his shepherd's staff that he used uh, to take care of the sheep. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, the river. But now I have become two groups. Save me now, I pray, for the hand of my brother Esau. For I am afraid that he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Genesis 22, verse 9 and following. I have uh, been amazed in studying these Old Testament saints and how bold they are to remind God to his face Yeah, but you said. Do we do that? We get scared at what is going on politically, what's happening in the culture. We think of ourselves as God's people in his church. Do we ever say to God, yeah, but you said you were going to protect us. You were going to take care of us. What's all this business with Russia? They may show up on our shore pretty soon. Then what, Lord? We start to get the shakes. Jacob doesn't do that. He says, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, you said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindnesses and faithfulness that you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed the Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray. From the hand of my brother Esau. For I am afraid. He will come and attack me. And also the mothers with their children. But you said. I will surely make you prosper. And will make your descendants. Like the sand of the sea. Which cannot be counted. Genesis 32 verses 9 and following. Have you ever said to God. But you said. Look what's happening. But you said. I want you to observe in this prayer of Jacob both affirmation and supplication. 
first affirmation, verse 10. What does he affirm as he prays? Here's what he does. I'm unworthy. Whoa. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness that you have shown me. I had only my staff, my shepherd's staff, when I crossed the Jordan. But now I've become two groups. He's saying, you know, I, I crossed the Jordan with a stick in my hand. That's what I had. But now I have prospered so much. I've got herds of animals, flocks of sheep. It's a righteous man that can affirm that he has what he has and he is what he is because of the grace of God. You don't see that in our culture. The businessmen, think that they are successful in their business because of who they are. Their brains. But he doesn't affirm that. Jacob knows. So that's his affirmation. But he also has supplication. Look at verse 11. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid that he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. So first there's affirmation. I, I came over Jordan with a stick in my hand. And now I'm two groups. I really prospered. But now he has a prayer. He has supplication. And it's this. Save me, I pray. Why? I'm afraid. <laughs> he says it. I am afraid that Esau will come and attack me and also the mothers and their children. I'm going to lose my family. Are we not seeing here, finally, in a long time coming, maybe the glimmer of true faith within Jacob? No longer relying upon <clears throat> solely upon his wits, but beginning to understand uh, somewhat, the beginning to understand the absolute necessity for a helpless sinner to call out to God to be rescued from what cannot be avoided by human ingenuity alone. Jacob's faith is not pervasive in his personality as yet, but the embers are there. Sent by God to draw this deceiver away from his sin and into the forgiveness and reconciliation of God. I think it's noteworthy 
He prayed instead of trying to bargain with God as he did at Bethel. You remember that? If you will do this and this and this and this for me, here's what I will do for you, oh God. Do, 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 do. There's none of that now. He has nothing with which to bargain. <laughs> We can put it this way, Esau holds all the cards. So I think this is a great improvement in Jacob. He's not where he needs to be yet, but he's on his way. That brings us to the, to the fact that he offers a peace offering. Verse 13. It says he spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. Okay, what's the gift? He tells us. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, and 20 rams. So now that's sheep. 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, 10 male donkeys. You adding all this up? In case you didn't, I did. It's over 550 animals. And it says he put them in care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, Go ahead of me, keep some space, one from in the lead, one in the leads. He instructed them, When my brother Esau meets you, and asks, To whom do you belong, and where are you going, and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say, They belong to your Servant Jacob, hmm. they are a gift sent by, sent to my Lord Esau, and he's coming behind us. He also instructed the second and the third of those servants and all the others who followed the herds. You're to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, this is one of the times where we don't have to even guess what he was thinking, the scripture tells us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts that I am sending on ahead. And later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. Genesis 32, verse 13 and 5. You will notice that to his statements of humility, addressing Esau as master, as lord, himself as servant... He now adds a hefty, costly, monetary peace offering. 
It is Jacob's way of saying, brother, if I have robbed you of your rightful prosperity, preeminence as the head of the clan, when I tricked you out of your birthright and stole your blessing, I would like you to have this gift as a compensation for my deceptive ways. It's my heartfelt desire to be reconciled to you in peace. Okay. Ball is in Esau's court. What's he going to do? Well, you have to wait till we get to that. Chapter 33. It's coming. Let's look at the spiritual lessons for Jacob's preparation in this study this day. Number one, all of God's methods in revealing himself to sinners consummate in the final revelation given, namely his son, Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, and we've been studying it. Here's what he writes. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers, Jacob being one of them, right? Okay. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. And we've seen some of that. Audible speech, dreams, visions, appearances in physical form, many ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The Son, S-O-N, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. Hebrews 1, the first three verses that opens that book. Jesus taught His disciples, anyone who has seen Me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father. John 14, verse 9. We've learned from our study in John's Gospel that Jesus could challenge the religious leaders who sought to take his life. What about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said, I am God's Son? Do you believe me? Unless I do what the Father does, don't believe me. John 10, verse 36. In other words, the proof is in the pudding. I'm doing the work of God that only God can do. So when I say I am God's son, I've got credible evidence of that. It's not just words. What all this means, of course is that there is nothing more in terms of God revealing himself that's yet coming. There's nothing coming. In the historical Jesus, all revelation has ceased. Not angels, not visions, not dreams, not physical appearances, nor miracles, nor voices, nor speaking in tongues, nor catastrophic events. Yet to come, 
none of this will say or do more for man to learn about God and his will than what is found in Jesus Christ's person and teaching. We have the final revelation of what God is like. And the book of Hebrews in our New Testament scriptures emphasizes the superiority of Jesus so that mankind will stop searching for salvation some other way and will acknowledge the supremacy of Jesus, God's Son. Our text, God sent angels to guide Jacob and to protect him. But good as that was, Hebrews 1 verse 7, speaking of the angels, God says, He makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Hebrews 1 verse 7 and following. So here's the great contrast. There are the servants of God. Yeah, Moses was one of them. Uh, but then there's the Son of God. Son trumps servant. Yet what we find in our day is what Paul warned against. And condemned. What's that? Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you from the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he's seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. Boy, that's our society. Colossians 2 verse 18. What do we have in our day? We have constant reports of people seeking revelations from angels, even dead saints, talking icons, mystical happenings, anything but God's word about the Son of God who has come. Moses was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Speaking God's word to a stiff-necked and rebellious people. But Hebrews 3 verse 5 keeps Moses in proper perspective saying this. Moses was faithful. He was. He was faithful as a servant. In all God's house. Testifying. Audibly and in written form. We know that because Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. As well as speaking, he wrote. And he wrote about what would be said in the future. So the writer of Hebrews says, yeah, Moses was faithful as a servant. Wonderful servant. 
God spoke to him. He wrote it down. The people had a written record of the word of God. But, I'm still reading from Hebrews. But, Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. Whoa. Wait a minute. Moses is the servant in God's house. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And the writer goes on to say, and we are his house. If we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. Hebrews 3, verse 5 and 6. Something radical has changed. A greater than Moses has showed up. We have people in our day supposedly searching for God through visions and dreams and audible voices and signs and miracles and the like, when Jesus, the exact representation of God, is ignored or substituted with lesser things. Let me read it for you. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled (coughs) the Son of God underfoot? (coughs) Who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant and has sanctified him and who has insulted the spirit of grace. Hebrews 10, verse 28, 29. Again, a few pages over, Hebrews 12, verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, that's Moses, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? The writer of Hebrews is saying Jesus is the fullest, the final revelation of God given to mankind. It doesn't get any better, it doesn't get any bigger than Jesus Christ, God's very own Son, coming to earth to explain or demonstrate what God the Father is like. God's guardian angels work for the benefit of God's chosen people. I've been saying all along that Jacob at this point in his life is not a true believer. I hope to uh, prove that in our next study. At this point in his life, Jacob is like an excellent observer of those who do truly know God. His father, Isaac, being the closest example he has, 
his grandfather, Abraham, being a close second. These two men, Isaac, Abraham, being considered patriarchs in their own right, had a tremendous influence on Jacob, even in his skeptical state. When Jacob boasts of God's intervention in his life, notice how he expresses it. Chapter 31, verse 42. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, the fear of Isaac, had not been with me, you, Laban, surely would have sent me away empty-handed. You see, he acknowledges. He's reaping blessings because of his association with these godly patriarchs. At the peace treaty confirmation, notice how Jacob phrases his oath. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. Chapter 31, verse 53. Okay, but why does he not claim the benevolence shown to him as a result of his own God? Can't he say, If my God had not been with me, you would have sent me away penniless? Uh, No, he can't say that. He won't say it. He's not there yet, spiritually. And he refuses to do that because though he does not know God in that personal way, he respects the God of his father and does not want to blaspheme his name through deceit as though God was in fact his Savior, his Lord. He's not there yet. He's coming. God's drawing him. Okay, then why would God's angels protect him and care for him and even prosper Jacob, the unbeliever? Yeah, we would expect to find God's angels watching over his people, but Jacob is yet a pagan, and his family, uncle, Laban, Rachel, they're still carrying around what? Household idols. You've got to take all these things that are being revealed to us about these people. Okay, now what about the angels? Let me read it for you from Hebrews 1, verse 14. Are not all angels, get this now, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Mm. Hebrews 1, verse 14. God's angels appear to Jacob in his, ca- in his case, not because he's already a saved man, but because he will become a child of God and inherit salvation. This verb here in the original, will inherit, is the Greek word mellow, and it means to be at the point of action. To be at the point So it is a strong form of the idea of expectation. Which is about to come true.
We could say it this way. Jacob's salvation is not in doubt. But then neither is yours, nor mine, nor anyone whom God has set his affection upon. Jesus put it this way. All that the Father gives me will, what? Come to me. No doubt about it. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. John 6, verse 37. Which tells us, we are not an afterthought of God. We are an unpurposed thought of God. His angels see to it that we make it safely into God's family. Even working with us before the hour we believe. Well, there's a lot of mystery here. I'm not saying that it's a snap on your part or my part to just catch it all and to understand it all. But we do need to meditate on it and really think through it. Then thirdly, beware of insincere and false humility when making amends with those you have wronged. That's another lesson. Let me say it again. Beware of insincere and false humility when making amends with those you have wronged. When Jacob sent out his messengers to intercept Esau's advancing entourage of 400, Jacob told his servants, be sure, and I'm reading scripture now, be sure to say, now get this, be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. Make sure you don't forget that phrase. Be sure you say, your servant Jacob. For he thought, I will pacify him, that is Esau, with these gifts that I am sending on ahead. And then later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. And the idea is, maybe he'll receive me in peace. You know, he did say he was going to kill me. But maybe, just maybe, there'll be a change of heart. Did Jacob really see himself as Esau's servant? He certainly said it many times. Even calling Esau his Lord, verse 5. My master, verse 4. Statements of self-deprecation and humility can be nothing more than a ploy. A means to gain yet another advantage over a foe. By convincing him or her that all is well when bitterness of heart yet remains. May I say that God is not into showmanship. He's not into words and actions which have at their base deception. 
like a magician who's moving and doing things with one hand so you won't concentrate on what he's really doing with the other hand. No, God's not into that. Let me read it for you, Colossians 2.18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you from the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. Colossians 2.18 Or again, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you've learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving the Lord, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Romans 16, verse 17 and 18. Boy, I like that admonition because you know what? I find that we Christians are naive. We are. Why are we naive? Because we want to believe the best about people, which I think is, in itself, is a good quality to have. Certainly, I don't want to be thinking the worst about people. When they say something or do something, I want to think, wow, that, that, that's really a nice thought. That's, or that's a good action that they're employing. Jacob's reputation in these matters was not very honorable. <laughs> I mean, we read, moreover, Jacob deceived Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he was running away. Chapter 31, verse 20. Even when he takes off, he's still in this deceptive posture of things. Then Laban said to Jacob, What have you done? You have deceived me. And you've carried off my daughters like captives of war. Chapter 31, verse 26. And now, just days later, are we to believe that all these overtures of humility made towards Esau, that these are genuine? Not likely. Not yet. Paul told Timothy to instruct his students to avoid foolish talk and vain philosophy. And he says, the goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. 1 Timothy 1, verse 5. False humility is not a quality of sincere faith. People do it all the time. And then finally, it is good to fear our enemies and to be driven to prayer. There's a wonderful lesson. Verse 11 says, Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau. For I am afraid. He will come. He will attack me. And also the mothers and their children. What is Esau known for? Being a great hunter, right? He's the Robin Hood of the Old Testament. 
put the arrow wherever he wants it. That brother of mine's coming out with 400 people. He's going to kill me. He's going to kill my wife and children. And as far as my sheep and goats and camels and all of that, he'll just take them. He doesn't need me to give them. But he's driven to pray. What is prayer after all? I mean, if it is anything, it is an acknowledgement of need. It is an acknowledgement of deficiency in knowledge or strength or will to rectify a serious problem by one's own resources or person. It is a cry for intervention from God. That's what prayer is. And Jacob is not being melodramatic here. When last he left the land of Canaan, it was in fear, the scripture says. Now as he returns home, there's fear again. What's the source of his fear? Genesis 28:41. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him, and he said to himself, "The days of mourning for my father are near, and then I will kill my brother Jacob." And we remember that Esau is the hunter of the two boys. He was a killer by nature. Sure, animals. But he could just as easily turn his bow on his brother. In later history, when Hezekiah was surrounded by the forces of Assyria, Sennacherib the king, in arrogance, boasted of all the cities that had fallen to his army, and basically said to Hezekiah, You're next. You're next. And don't expect any help from your God. Hezekiah took Sennacherib's boastful letter into the temple of the Lord, and he displayed it before the Lord on the floor. And he prayed, O Lord, God of Israel, and thrown between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You've made heaven and earth. O give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. Who? me chills he goes on it is true O Lord that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands they have thrown their gods into the fire they have destroyed them for they were not gods but only wood and, and, and stone fashioned by men's hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, 
our God. Wow. Notice what he prays for. Lord, you got to save us. You, you know, this Sennacherib guy, he's got a whole army. And he can surround Jerusalem like, you know, like nothing. He's going to wipe us out. No, he doesn't pray that way. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. This pagan blasphemer needs to have a meeting with the God of the universe. And that's what I'm praying for. I think Jacob's fear of Esau did him good because it revealed to him his true danger and how pitifully his own ability was to defend himself against his warrior brother. It drove him to his knees in prayer. Like Hezekiah. That's a good thing. If you have a fear of dying because the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10 verse 31. The psalmist's prayer could be a model for you to pray. David prayed it and here's what he said. This is King David now. And he's praying. And here's what he says in his prayer. This poor man called and the Lord heard him and he saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Taste, see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Psalm 34, verse 6 and following. You know, it's a great mercy of God to show us how weak and pitiful we are. Because if there's one sin that will damn people to hell for eternity. It's the sin of pride. It brought Satan out of heaven to this earth in judgment. And it will take people straight to hell because they think they're the big shot in their life. And they have not recognized God's right to rule over them, to tell them what to do, when to do it, and so forth. He's not my boss. My God would never. Well, your God doesn't exist. The God that is, the only God that is, 
is recorded for us in the Holy Scriptures. And he's given us this testimony. He doesn't want you to be ignorant of him. That's why we've got a whole book that explains God to us. He wants you to know him. Come to understand him and to love him. And obey him. May God give us such grace. Father, we thank you for your word. We praise you for it. Please bless it to our hearts today. I pray, Lord, that you will help your people wherever we are, wherever they are found. The forces of evil are are everywhere. And I believe you have God's people everywhere. We need an unction from your Holy Spirit to strengthen us. To keep our eyes focused on the Lord, not ourselves. We'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're running a little late. I'm sorry I went over. But I'm going to ask Phil if he would give a special prayer. And we'll close with this. I've asked him if he would <clears throat> excuse me, pray for uh, the people in Europe. Uh, particularly those that are being attacked by Russia. There's got to be. you got to think this through. There's got to be God's people among those being persecuted and killed over there. God has his people everywhere. And that whole region is where the gospel went under the Apostle Paul. Do you know that our founding fathers came out of such places as Germany? France, Scandinavian countries, even England. They came here to America and they brought the gospel with them and taught us, our forefathers, about salvation in Christ. Phil, lead us in closing prayer. We seek your face, Lord. We seek your wisdom, and especially your grace. Not just for us, Lord, but for the people in this country of Ukraine. Yes. Lord, we pray that, as we've heard so many of the examples of prayers of those who are desperate, we are not desperate for ourselves, but for these people that are under siege. This Russian force that has come in and invaded this country seek to dominate and terrorize these people. The Lord, I pray. I pray your grace be upon these people of Ukraine, that you would imbue them with a, a fortitude, a strength, Courage to resist the tyrannical powers that are invading their country. Give them the strength, Lord, to resist with the righteous indignation that you will endure them. Let other countries that surround this nation.
support them and strengthen them and guard them. Father, send your spirit amongst these people that they would understand that their freedom does not come from man. Their liberties do not come from man. Nothing that they have, their blessings that they enjoy, none of that comes from man, Lord, but it comes from you, Almighty God, Jehovah. Father, be with these people. Strengthen their hearts. Give them a resolve to fight back the tyranny that impedes upon their lives. From the youngest to the oldest, Lord, give them the will to resist and show the dictators of the world, not just Putin, but all would-be dictators, terrorize and imprison the weak but they do not have final control in their lives. They may take their bodies and kill them, but they cannot seize their souls. Lord, only you can do that. And it is this prayer, Lord, that as far as these people draw breath, that your Holy Spirit would be upon them and you would be raising up godly men and godly women, not just to resist the evil Be one and only God in the universe. And Father, we pray for ourselves also that you would drive us to our knees in this country in humility as we seek your face and your wisdom. Mm. That we would have a better understanding and come back to the idea, Lord, that you are the grantor of all things in our lives. You give us the very breath to breathe. You give us the day, you give us the night. Give us rest when it's time, Lord, and your bidding. You bring us home. For some, it will be judgment, for damnation. But those who are in you, Lord, and you are in them, Lord, it will be eternal rest and glory mm. with you. Give them strength. Give them peace in their hearts. And Father, we ask especially for the Lee family in Romania as they are trying to give refuge and safe passage to those who do not have the wherewithal to resist but to flee. Give them safe passage and safe journeys that they may have arrested from this terrible, terrible thing that's impending. Give them leads protection. Give them grace. Give them strength and fortitude to go on serve you as a righteous Lord. Be with other nations. Be with the other missionaries around the world that face the same difficulties. That you would give them grace as well. Father, as we go about our day, let us be mindful in this country and the world around the freedom. you, O Lord, know all about that. You gave us salvation through a terrible price to share blood of your Lord, Jesus Christ. And because of that, we have no, no sense of merit in our salvation. It was given freely to us that we may not boast. But Father, have your spirit upon us that we continue to seek your face and your wisdom. That we continue to honor you 
Actually, Father, all things will pass away except your kingdom. They will be there for eternity. We pray your will, Lord, that through all of this, saints would be raised up, godly men, godly women, to serve you and give you the honor and the glory that is yours. For your honor, for our good, Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. We are dismissed. Remember that uh, tonight at 6 o'clock we'll have our Bible study in the basement.